Father, the world tells us that we need things to be happy, to be content, to be successful. But Lord, we here this afternoon realizing that if we get the things of this world and don't have you, we have nothing. We want you, Jesus. This season that we, we celebrate every year is a festive season that I enjoy. But oftentimes the, the commercialism of this season blinds us to the true fact that in time and space in history, the Lord Jesus tucked himself in skin inside of Mary's womb and he was born. Lord, let us think deeply of these truths today because we're not here just to to, to, to come together like we would do a social club. We're here to worship you. So Lord God, as we prepare to hear from your word through our brother, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to obey what your word says. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, that's, that's, all right, you, you, you got that. Um, man, I'm excited to introduce our speaker, but before we do introduce him, I, don't, I should have had some of these in my hands, but um, if you do not have the Advent devotionals that have been created. Our very own Rebecca Henderson, who led us in our prayer time, in our confession time, she put in the work to have a devotional for not only adults, but for our children. We have some devotionals at the desk. Whether you are a covenant partner or a member here or not, this is available for you. And so I ask that you would stop by the desk and get that. And I pray that this time of Advent, this is the season that we're in. Advent means coming, right? We're remembering the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. And I pray that we would, in this season, be saturated with these truths. The fact that we serve a God who came to earth. And so we have a brother who's going to come. Uh, many of you know him, many of you do not. But our own Eric Major, and I say our own, because, brother, you still belong to us. I don't, you, you, you somewhere else, but you, you belong. Eric Major was a part of our launch team. And with us, up until recently, the Lord called him to a new space, Midtown Community Church. But long ago, I asked Eric to uh, be prepared to open God's word. And so I'm excited to hear from him today, and I hope you are too. So let's receive Eric as he, he comes to share the word. What's going on? It's good to see all of you. It's really good to be back with you. Um, like Russell said, I, I've had the privilege now to be called away to a new work, but um, I had the privilege two years ago to move down to Raleigh uh, with my family from Michigan, uh, which is a state that I, I was born in. I grew up in it without a brief um, hiatus to a colder place called Alaska, and coming back, uh, ministered there for about, uh, about uh, 10 years total, about three in Alaska. And then when we moved down here in 2019, um, we, we pulled in 
to the house that we are now currently living in at one in the morning with the moving truck. Um, I had driven all day and I collapsed in a heap. And then when we woke up on Sunday morning, um, my wife said, hey, do you want to visit a church? Now, um, the answer was no, um, because I had driven all day and was, and was really not looking forward to it. But my wife had researched different churches before we had come down here, and we ended up at Christ the King, a sending church for reconciliation. And uh, the first Sunday that we, that we were up in there, Russell was the preacher that morning. Um, and I, had, I didn't know anything about this church. I kind of immediately assumed, like, oh, this is interesting. So Russell is, Russell is the pastor here. Um, found out shortly that, that Russell was in the process of planting reconciliation in church. And my wife and I had a, had a conversation where we said, you know what, I bet you we're going to go there. And then sure enough, the first conversation that I had with one of the other pastors there, he said, you need to, you need to meet Russell and you need to go with reconciliation. And the rest of it has been wonderful, amazing history for our family um, and to be a part of this church for the past two years. So I am so glad to be back with you. I want to get into the word. Uh, if you could turn in your Bibles or it's printed in uh, your worship guide, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Um, and God's grace and Russell's grace to me, I get the birth narrative of Jesus this morning. So um, I know that in, in your worship guides printed in the CSB, I'll be preaching out of the ESV. So if it's a little bit different than what you're reading, that's the reason for that. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, this is the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together as we get into the text. Father God, we do thank you and praise you for this amazing season where we, where we celebrate your appearing you're coming in the flesh, as Pastor Russell said, to dwell with us. And we celebrate that today and this season. So as we look at this passage, wonderful, this wonderful sacred text, Lord, about your birth, your coming to this world. I just ask God that you would bind our hearts together as we read this, Lord. I ask that you would help each one of us understand it on each level that we are coming to it. No matter how much we know about you, Lord, um, that you would reveal yourself to us in a, in a mighty way. I ask God that you would merely use me, that, that my words um, would, would fall silent if they're not part of your purpose, but instead, God, that you would speak um, through your text and through me uh, this afternoon. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, so, so by means of introduction, I want to talk about donkeys. Um, which might be a, sound like a weird thing. Um, I know that there's all kinds of opportunities for you to do things with your family uh, during this Christmas season, and one of, one of them might be a live nativity, which might be, for many of you, the only time that you might possibly encounter donkeys. And maybe even before I said this, you hadn't thought about a donkey in over a year, maybe the last time that you went and saw a live nativity. 
Um, so where, where we live in Wendell, every single time that I would drive here uh, to, attend, to attend church, we would drive past this farm on Eagle Rock Road uh, that had cattle in the front, but also goats and a bunch of donkeys that were out there. Um, but they weren't the reason why this was on my mind. Um, I had the privilege of growing up on a small farm. That's just part of my experience. And my wife also had a, a family um, that, from the South that kept animals. And one of the animals that her grandfather kept was a, a donkey that eventually gave birth. And there was this donkey and her foal that would always be around there. My wife had fond memories growing up and visiting this donkey. And the donkey would come running. Um, Heather would bring her apples. They'd bring her uh, watermelon rinds, all, all kinds of these different things. And, and so for us, we have a little bit of familiarity with donkeys, just a, just a little bit of that. And growing up around farm animals, I have a little bit of familiarity with farm animals. Now, the reason why I bring this up and the reason why I want to talk about donkeys is because there is often a dis connect that we have when we come to scripture um, and we, we see farm animals within it, okay? So one of the, the, the things that the Bible talks about us are as sheep, and there's all kinds of rumors going around about what sheep are like and why we are compared to sheep, um, and the, one of the problems that I think that we have in a modern culture in which we're, we've been removed from a, a farm system, somebody who's grown up in that, is realizing there was a lot of misconceptions for, um, around me in terms of what farm animals were. Um, like, I had, you know, just, to, just to give you an idea, weird experience. Uh, when I was a, a second grader, I visited a slaughterhouse. Um, I doubt that that would even be allowed. These, I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be. Uh, but that was just the experience. That, so like growing up around that, realized that there was these misconceptions. Um, and so much so that there are, there are certain metaphors that get used around the scripture and just around our world today that often get misunderstood if you don't understand farm animals. And so thinking about donkeys, the primary metaphor that I've heard about donkeys is how do you motivate a donkey? Well, how do you motivate it? What are, the, what are the two things that people talk about when they say, how do you motivate a donkey? What are you going to use? Carrot or a stick, right? So there you go. So we've, we know this metaphor. And the idea of it is, is that I can dangle a carrot in front of a donkey. And that donkey, my, the idea is that that donkey might move. I, can I suggest for you that that does not work? Um, just from experience, it's just not a great way. But on top of that, the idea then is that if you can't motivate it with a carrot, then you're going to use a stick and you're going to whip its rear end and then that's going to get it to do what you want. Can I also suggest that that also is not a really great motivating factor? So we already see that this begins breaking down. But the problem with this is that for those, if you've ever met somebody, you've been around farm animals, not for just a little bit of time, like I'm not talking about when you go to a petting farm, but you grow around somebody who actually raises them, you realize really quickly that what we're actually talking about in that metaphor is manipulation. It's about trying to get a donkey or a farm animal, whatever it might be, to do what it is that you want. Maybe a little bit closer to home, it might be your pets. Right? There's this idea that I'm gonna, when I'm training my dog, or I'm, I don't know if you can train cats, but you're training your dog, you can use food to train them. And the idea of it is, is that that dog is going to come to you because they know that you've got treats, or they're going to do X, Y, Z for you because you've got treats. And if they disobey, maybe you're going to use a newspaper, right? And so we have this, this carrots and sticks thing can come that way. We also see this maybe in the approach to children, 
when it comes to how you motivate your children to do what it is that you want them to do. What I want to suggest for you is that when we look at this text and we see this, is that these are not good motivating factors. And I would also suggest that maybe God isn't trying to manipulate us to do anything. Maybe instead what God wants is what's best for us. And the way that he's going to do that is lead us. And the way that he's going to lead us is through relationship. See, the reality is, is that the reason why the donkey would come running to the fence when Heather would come is, yes, she enjoyed her apples. She enjoyed her watermelon rinds. But what she enjoyed more was the fact that she was going to get a scratch on the neck and she was going to hang out with you. There's a change that happens if you've had a pet, and you know this change that happens when suddenly the, the animal comes running to you when you get home, not because they think that you have treats. In fact, they learn really quickly that when you come home, you don't have treats. Um, you just came from work. Like, you weren't thinking about them until you got home. They were thinking about you all day. That's its own piece. But even when it comes to our children and other people, um, if we are continuing to motivate our children simply because they're going to get a reward or they're going to get a punishment, I'm going to say that there has been a failure in the way that we have taught them and how we have motivated them. The reality is, is that children, just in terms of even my, my adult life, the reason why I love my parents and why I honor and respect their word is not because they fed and clothed me. And it's not because I am afraid that my mom is going to spank my bottom. It would be really ineffective these days and would result in a lot of laughter the reason is, is because my mom and my dad, they loved me, and they cared for me, and they were present with me. And so when you look at this text today, and as we're talking about the advent of love, we're talking about what it is that God does to show and demonstrate his love for us. There's many answers to this question. God's love is multifaceted, but what I want to focus on today is this idea that the presence of God is the display of the love of God. The love of God is displayed in the presence of God. And so as we look at this, we're going to just see this in three different ways. We're going to see that God gives himself to us. Then we're going to see that we give ourselves to others. And then we allow others to give themselves to us. We see this as God is the motivator for all these things. So as you approach this text, the first thing that we see is, a, is a, probably every preacher's favorite type of passage, which is a list of historical facts or genealogies. This is, this is not the place that a lot of people want to go. Like, we're not going to pull a bunch of ideas from these type of texts. It's, it's you know, you say, well, okay, we're going to deal with it and move on. But I want to suggest that when you are reading Scripture— and you come to a passage like this in which there's all these historic facts and like, I don't care about Caesar Augustus. I haven't thought about him since high school world history, right? I don't even know who Quirinius is. I didn't know that he existed. Well, guess what? Most people in the Western world didn't know he existed for a very long time. People were looking at this and saying, this is one of the things that says we, that Luke didn't know what he was talking about. And then lo and behold, there's some people digging around in the dirt in Syria and they come up with a seal with his name on it. Right? So there's all kinds of things here that people are like, okay, who cares? This is the reason why it's here. And this is why if you have the privilege to read Luke's text, you're going to see this a whole lot. Luke cares about history. The reason why Luke cares about history is because God cares about history. We do not serve a God who is just somewhere far off looking down and saying, let's just watch what happens here. He didn't turn a clock and set it go, but instead he decided, I'm going to come in and I'm going to be a part of this history. And so when we look at even the, the word history, I don't know what's cheesy, but history is often called his story. 
God is the one that's weaving this together. And I want us to, to look at a couple of things. We know who Caesar Augustus is. Caesar Augustus is a known historic entity. Nowadays, nobody doubts the existence of Quirinius or that he governed. What Luke is doing is setting a scene here that when you go and you dig around in the dirt, you can find evidence of these men. And in fact, when we dig around in the dirt, we find evidence of this census. We find evidence of this, this decree. We find evidence that Augustus wanted some money. That he wanted to fill his pockets. And the way that you filled your pockets was you taxed people. And how do you know that you're getting enough tax? You count people. Once you start counting people, you can count money. So we know that this happened. The importance for us as Christians is oftentimes we can read the birth stories of Jesus or we can come to this time and we can say, we're just focusing in on the spirit of this holiday. Even as Christians, we can just focus, we're just, it's the spirit of this holiday. What we are celebrating is an actual inbreaking of God in the flesh, into history. That as we look at this, these things root it in a time and a place. God has come. God has been present with us. There is a concept in scripture that's a really important one for us as you, as you read all of it. And it's this idea behind this of, of, again, how we see God's love. I would suggest that from Genesis to Revelation, the way that God displays his love is something that theologians call the Emmanuel Principle. And I know that if you were here last week, the text was Isaiah 7:14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew defines it and lets you know that for those of you that don't know Hebrew, that Emmanuel means God with us. From the very beginning, from the first prophecies we're looking at it, the idea was that Jesus was going to come and he was going to be God with us. But from the very beginning, this is what God did. When God created us, he created us to be with him. When he placed us in perfect creation, providing us all the things that we need, we focus a lot on those things. And so oftentimes if you're reading Genesis and you come to the, this, this story about a serpent deceiving a woman to take a piece of fruit from a tree, you can say, God punished humanity for all of that? We're just taking a piece of fruit? The reason why it happened is because it wasn't just taking a piece of fruit, it was rejecting your creator. It was a rejection of the God who had provided everything for you and gave him yourself and was lived, like existed in this moment for you, for your joy. That God places himself, he confines himself to say, I want this creature that I have created to have the most joy possible. And the way that that joy comes is from knowing me. And so when we, we break that, you start looking through the text and suddenly you see that people run away from God. But what God says, he comes to every single patriarch and he makes something called a covenant, which again, if you were here last week, I know that Bapo talked about that. But the idea of what this covenant was, it says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what God's desire was for us. He desired us. I will be your God and you will be my people. You see it all throughout that. When God appears to Moses in Exodus 6-7, he says, I will be their, their God. I will be a God to them. In Genesis 17, 7, as he's talking to Abraham, he says, I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you. The Emmanuel principle is that God displays his presence by being, or by his love, by being present with us. 
This has significant impact for us as we think about our daily lives. First of all, there's a couple things that come with this. First of all, I love how the Spirit works. Dottie girl, you preach. The reality is, is that we have certain language that makes us, that shows that we actually don't believe that God is with us all the time. All right? I need to go be with God. How many of y'all, how many, no, never mind, we're not going to take a poll, but because I know that many of y'all said that. I'm going to go be with God. We're saying, I'm going to go do my quiet time. If you're, you know, grew up in a Christian church, you got that, that little, you know, Christianese phrase. When we say quiet time, I don't know what that is. Go in the woods, hang out, and you can't hear anybody. No, but we're going to, as you open up your Bible, right, I'm going to go spend time with God. I would, I'd like to suggest that you transform your thinking on that. That for me, as I, I try to think about this, I want to transform my thinking that as if I have to go somewhere in my house to be with God, but instead that God is with me now. And God is with me wherever I go. And instead, it's just more about opening up our minds to an awareness that God is with us at all times. Um, I had the privilege of being with a brother who was part of a, a, a seaman's mission in Alaska. So seaman's mission, if you think about that, um, they would exist in the harbors, for a very long time. And the idea is that when sailors would come in from a long trip, um, that there would be a, a missionary there that would be able to receive them, to care for them and provide things for them. That's why these missions were established. A lot of people forget that there are still a lot of people around the world that their primary way of, of receiving income is being on ships. And in Alaska, ships means cruise ships. And if you've ever been on a cruise ship, um, your goal on being on the cruise ship is to not do anything. Amen. Your role there is to be served. Your role there is to be cared for. So the idea that, you know, if you're on a cruise ship and, and your drink runs out, right, that you, you clink your glass together because you want another drink in your hand, right? Like, this is the, the posture of cruise ships that doesn't happen by accident. There is all these people running around behind the scenes serving you, and what I learned from this missionary is that as he dealt with all kinds of people who were living on cruise ships, you're around serving, is that some of them had a four-hour break in their day for everything, including sleep. You're talking about the kind of pressure that you had to keep that job and send money home to your family. You would endure those kinds of conditions. And so as a Christian... You had, these, you had people that would come to Christ during this and wonder, how in the world am I supposed to fulfill my religious commitment? Because they had services that would go on throughout the day on the cruise ships for crews. But if it didn't line up with your four hours, you're not going to make it. And then you have to ask the question, do I want to be in a service for an hour or do I want to sleep for four? You talk about interesting motivation. And you talk about, he had this, this, this wonderful conversation with an Indonesian woman who came to him and was like, she was like in shame with this question, but she's like, is, is it all right if I pray to God when I'm on the toilet? Is it all right? Right? Because that was, that was a moment that she could have away from everybody. I mean, I mean, I feel this. I got three kids. Like, that's, a, that's sacred time for me, you know? But for her, it was this reality of knowing that God was with her at all times, that she did not have to walk into a chapel with a cross on it to know that God was with her. But that she was with God, that God was with her even in those, those very moments. So we, we reorient our attitudes, we reorient our ideas about what the Christian life looks like with the reality that God is with us at all times. The second thing 
is that we see that we give ourselves to others. Now, as we, as we get through these, the, the historic things, we get to two characters that are very important in this text. One that is only really important in the Gospels when it comes to the birth narrative. And that's it. A man named Joseph. And then another woman named Mary, who we rightly honor as the mother of our Lord. But it says that Joseph went up from Galilee, the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. In both of these situations, I want us to look at Joseph and look at Mary and look at the way that they loved and gave themselves to Jesus. First of all, just looking at at Joseph. Joseph was fully aware that the child in his fiancé's belly was not his. Was fully aware that the baby inside of his betrothed's belly was not his child. And yet he still married her, for starts, but embarked on a journey and a trip to take her with him because she was pregnant. The, re- the reality is, is that Mary, in her state, like, if you think about how this goes, probably should not have been traveling. Again, talk about donkeys again? So I know many people that a two-hour car ride will pretty much destroy your back for a week. Try riding for days on the back of an animal. Probably should not have been traveling. But yet, she travels with him to Bethlehem, most likely because she has an inheritance in Bethlehem that if she does not go and be registered, it forfeits her. That is what most commentators, when they look at this, says, why did, why, why did Mary move? Is probably that reason. And to be a woman with that kind of inheritance was not something you gave up lightly. And so Joseph, in his love for his Lord, who has been revealed to him what is happening here, and his love for his wife, endures the hardships with Mary to make sure that she gets to Bethlehem. And then Mary... What can we say about Mary? This woman endured the shame of being pregnant out of wedlock. Now, our society has changed in our view and our perspective on that. But theirs was far from accepting of it. In fact, so much so that this was, as you see if you read the Matthew account, this was grounds for divorce. This was a more serious thing than just the idea of I'm going to give the ring back. This was a legal divorce that would happen. They were essentially married without the perks, if I can be so bold to say that. And in this moment, Mary endures that shame because she knows that she is bearing the Messiah. It is very clear that in this beginning times that she is fully aware of what is happening with her and out of love bears the shame. And she bears the hardship so that she can bring the Lord in. And more than that, but you think about this type of love, appears and gives, is willing to give birth to her son in a stable. I don't know any mother that says, that's where I want to give birth to my child. Among all the straw and all the stink and all the, all the sickness that might be around there, all the discomfort that might be around there. I, but I'm going to 
follow through on the thing that God has given me. Wraps him, cares for him, wraps him in clothes, lays him in a manger. We should not miss the motherly affection that's happening here. And the example for us when it comes to the question of how we give ourselves to others, of seeing, and because oftentimes if we like look and we say, how did, how did God love us? Then we can say, yeah, but that's God. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, for some of you, this, is, this will rack your brain. There is nothing really special about Joseph and Mary in the sense that they were human in the sense that they had all the same weaknesses and more than we have. The modern world is a great place to live in for a lot of different ways. All kinds of things. Like, for instance, you don't have to ride on donkeys anymore to go 70 miles, right? The fact that nobody says amen to that, I don't even, I don't know why we can continue with the text for that. If you want, we can go, we can get those donkeys right now, and we can go on a road trip. Mary and Joseph should properly, as we look at this text, serve as an example for us when it comes to giving and serving other people. Because the reality is this, um, even people who have no concept of Christianity or God know that we are a poor center of our world. We are a really poor center of our world. People that are self-absorbed with themselves and exist for their own um, gratification, those things live incredibly unhappy lives. It is the number one reason, it is the number one reason why people end up in in clinical therapy. Ego. Some clinical narcissism, other things are more than that, but when it comes down to it, is that it often comes down to people aren't doing what I want them to do. Another way I might put it is my world revolves around me, but nobody else agrees. Isn't that all of us? See, for every single one of us, there's a reality that we are selfish people. We are selfish individuals. But yet there's this amazing, wonderful, beautiful thing that happens when you look at Scripture and you see it through the lens of God wanting our happiness and our joy. In Genesis 1, in the creation account, the first time that God says something is negative, the first negative that you see in Scripture besides the description that water hadn't rained, it's probably not even a negative. The first negative thing is that God says, it's not good for man to be alone. And we know this, that for society to flourish, the reality is, is that a man and a woman have to come together and bear children, and then those children have to go and find others and bear more children. There's a reality that for our society to go forward, even the procreational act is so incredibly important. But that is not the statement that God is making in this. It is a moral statement about this reality that we serve a triune God. Now, oftentimes we we forget about this, overlook this. God has existed in perfect community in himself since creation passed. And by that, I mean eternity passed. That's a good word to remember, right? In eternity past, before creation happens, there was community that existed in the Trinity. And so for the first time in all of eternity, God looks and says there's aloneness and it's bad. And so we, in this weird turn of events, those of us that are most consumed with wanting our own happiness will find ourselves being unconsumed with ourselves and consumed with the Lord and consumed with others. And I really, like, in terms, of, in terms of thinking like this, there's some foolishness here. But I want you to say that this is where Scripture goes. 
Do you want to be happy? I do. Do you want to be joyful? I do. I, I struggle with my brain. I struggle with my view of myself. I want to be happy. It is a borderline idol for me. In fact, in some days, I got to repent of it. It is an idol. The reality is, is that this is okay for you to want to be happy and joyful. But if you seek it in just gratifying yourself, you will find yourself wanting. It has been, and here's, here's the wonderful thing. I love being able to speak with a whole set of history behind me. Go read the, read the philosophers of the 17th and 16th century if you want to go to sleep. Um, but they will tell you, they will tell you there's all kinds of different ways. Oscar Wilde is an amazing writer, an amazing thinker, and he was a hedonist. And he, at the end of his life, looked back and recognized, sounds, he sounds like Solomon Ecclesiastes, if you're familiar with that book, that his, he looked back and said, my entire life was meaningless. In a pursuit of pleasure, my entire life was meaningless. I want, I want to encourage you that if, even if it is only from that perspective, serve others and serve the Lord because it is the way God created you and it is the way that you will be most happy and be most joyful. We exist in this way, to display and embody God's love by serving those that God puts in our path. Third point, we receive love from others. I will say that this might be the most difficult point for a lot of people in this room. Because in order to be served, you have to admit that you need to be served. If we cannot humble ourselves and if we are self-sufficient, how in the world can we receive help? Where am I getting this from? Well, Jesus. I want us to just take a minute to contemplate these realities. Jesus could have come as a conquering king. When you read about the second advent, that's what we see. We've got the Lord coming on a white horse. That is a military term. He's coming with a sword. He's coming with, as Russell likes to put, a tattoo on his thigh, right? He's coming as a conquering king. Why didn't he come that way the first time? Instead, he came as a helpless infant child to a poor, oppressed Jewish family. Now, there are many different reasons why this could be. Maybe Jesus did this. Maybe Jesus came so that we could see God um, connecting and being able to um, empathize with the disenfranchised. Maybe it was so that we could look and that we could see and we could understand that the God that we serve does not follow our rules. That he exists and works in different ways. But I would like to suggest for this morning that maybe the reason why he came as an infant child is to show us that our self-sufficiency is a myth. If God says from the very beginning it is not good for man to be alone, that is from then till now. There is no such thing as a thriving individual. There is only a thriving community. There is only a thriving community because that is what God's nature is and that is how he created us to be. I love watching these shows, by the way, that um, I'm a YouTube freak, so I did youth ministry for so long that I've stopped watching TV and just started paying attention to YouTube. So it's, 
it's the burden that God has given me. Um, but but there, are, there are some great YouTube shows, and one, one of them, um, I kind of don't want to call his name out because I really like him, and also there's, but there's this irony that I can't get over. The name of his channel is Modern Self-Reliance. And if you know me, you'll know that I love the outdoors. And this is one of those guys, I've, I've talked about these people in my sermons before. I've been watching a Canadian guy build a cabin in the middle of nowhere for five years, okay? This is who I am. God says you have to love me, all right? Um, but, this, but this gentleman, he's called Modern Self-Reliance. That's the name of his channel. And he also is one of these guys that is building stuff out in the middle of the woods. He's all about, I want to raise my own crops. I'm going to raise my own animals. And I'm all for that. But there's a significant irony to me that there's, a, there's an older gentleman that is in every single one of his videos with him. Even he knows that the name of his channel comes with irony because he is not ever rely. I've never seen him rely on just himself to do things. He has, he has a wife that helps him out. He's got a brother that he's close to that helps him out. Has this older gentleman. I've seen his dad. All kinds of people. That the things that he has created, and it's amazing. When you look at the creativity that God has placed in our brains and on our shoulders, it is an amazing thing. But even in all of that, all the things that he's created, he never did it by himself. And there is a true reality. There is no such thing as a self-made man or woman. Every single one of us is born with some kind of privilege. And I know that that word is a buzzword, but it needs to be used for this reason. If you were born into this world, you were born in grace. You were born in privilege because you were born. So Jesus comes, and he comes as an infant child who has to be protected by a man who is not truly his father. A man who, who in, in Matthew's account, um, is, flees Her- with, from Herod, takes, takes his, his son um, down to Egypt um, until he's safe and then brings him back, raises him up as his own son and all these things, and has to be born of a mother who bore the shame of this. But on top of that, this is, I remember the first time that I was teaching something and somebody from the, the group that I was teaching with like yelled out in defiance like I was completely wrong. And man, that's a, that is a harrowing thing for somebody who preaches. When you have somebody that's so confident about what you just said being wrong that they're going to say it, that they're going to tell you about it, mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> but what I said was imagine this in terms of God being fully human. Do you believe that? If you're a Christian today, do you believe that God was fully human? Does that mean that Jesus could talk as an infant? Does, does that mean that Jesus had bowel control as an infant? Fully human. Fully human. You talk about, like, it, it makes you read Scripture differently. When you start really contemplating. Like, when you, when you look at an infant child, when, and you experience the love that you have for that child, but the helplessness of it, it makes you understand God's heart a lot differently. In closing, I want to look at this word, swaddle. And the swaddling cloth that Mary wrapped around Jesus before he laid him in it. This is an uncommon word in Scripture. And I know this is going to happen a lot if we ever come in. It's always going to, Eric's always talking about the Greek again. But this is, I, I just think is amazing. 
Whether, like, words just mean words, right? They have significance, but the way that people use words often starts showing you what their mind is and their understanding behind it. The word they use is, it says that, um, that when, when Jesus swaddled, Jesus, uh, when, when Mary swaddled Jesus and then laid him in a manger, I'm sorry, it's the laid. He laid him in a manger. Swaddling is cool too. But when he laid him in a manger, um, this is the type of word that could have an object or could not. Kind of like the word stand. Like I could say, I stand up, or I stand up the inflatable snowman that fell over my yard, right? That's, I don't know why that was what came to my mind, but, you know, I can, I can stand up from a sitting position, or I can stand something else up. And so when it comes to this, there's an agent that lays something down. Mary is the agent, and Mary lays down Jesus. Luke only uses, it, uses this word two other times. And one other time is in Luke 12, 37. And it's so good, people. I, I need you to turn to it. I love staying in one text, but I need you to turn to Luke 12, 37. Beginning in verse 35. Jesus is teaching, and he's talking about what it looks like to be a faithful servant. Right? You can already see some, just some similar themes going on here. But I want you to read and then figure out if you can figure out where the word comes. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like the men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. In this text, the phrase he will make them recline at the table is the same word that's going on here. It's the same word, it's the same concept. And so as the Lord of the universe takes on true infant flesh, when the requirements of having to be swaddled by Mary and laid down in a manger, that what we're told is that for those who are faithful, the master will come and will serve them. So the Lord of the universe humbles himself so much that he must be served so that one day, those of us who are faithful, the Lord will come dress himself as a servant and serve us to cause us to recline at the table. The other time that Luke uses that word is when the disciples recline at the table for Passover before he goes to the cross. And in Revelation 19, we are told that there is a marriage supper that is going to happen. At that marriage supper, those who are faithful to the Lord will recline at the table and will be served and be spread a feast. Psalm 23 and starting talking about animals, we're going to end talking about animals. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, leads me beside still waters, and restores my soul. He leads me on path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? For you are with me. God comes near to us in Advent 
as a display of his love to show us that what he wants from us is for us to accept his invitation to recline at his table. As you gather around your tables this Christmas Eve with family and friends, may you be reminded that the Lord is with you and the Lord has invited you and all you need to do is accept the invitation and come, receive, and eat. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your love for us. We thank you for your humility. If we can say that, Lord. If we esteem you properly, Lord, you are the only one who is deserving of worship and glory and praise. And yet, you, of your own choice, humbled yourself. You humbled yourself and entered into our history that we might know you, that we might um, know that we serve a God who can sympathize with us, but also, Lord, to challenge our thinking about who we are, to challenge our thinking about what it means to be present with others. God, I, I pray this, this afternoon that we would just have a greater awareness of you being with us every single hour of our days. I ask, Lord God, that for those of us that struggle with serving other people, that you would motivate us, to, that you would have us to have eyes to see that we make awful gods. I pray, Lord, that we would sacrifice ourselves on the altar of the living God and dedicate our entire life to your service and to the service of those around us that we might experience the true fullness of joy that is only found in your presence. And God, I know that for some in here, Lord, that's the struggle is that we believe that ourselves, or we are self-made. I pray, Lord God, that you would shatter that image of ourselves, that we would see and understand who we are, but also know that we are beloved sons and daughters of the King, those who have trusted in you. I ask a blessing on our time, the rest of our time and during this Advent season. It's in your name we pray. Amen.